Speaking of protests, Julius, you okay, bud? Well, you got to make your concerns be known, buddy. This is the raw realness here on This Might Get Uncomfortable, y'all. Sometimes our animals in the background, they protest. It's said that your real life begins where your comfort zone ends. Well, it's about to get real as we have radically authentic conversations to help you thrive in your personal and professional life while navigating the twists and turns of being human. Buckle up, because this might get uncomfortable. Starts right now with Jason Robel and Whitney Lauritsen. Today's topic could certainly make us feel uncomfortable. And I feel like it's important to discuss this on a serious level and also find some positivity. Because sometimes the realities of life feel really sad and painful. And yet it's important that we not run away from things just because we're afraid of the pain and we're afraid of addressing them. And I think that's really at the heart of so much of what it means to be vegan. And actually, it reminds me of something which kind of makes me laugh. Speaking of making light of a situation, the other day I went into this amazing vegan grocery store called Besties in Los Angeles. And I actually went there the very first time with you, Jason. I think that was about a year ago. Does that sound about right? It hasn't been open that long. Yeah, it felt like probably springtime of 2019. Yeah, that sounds about right. Mm -hmm. It was probably around when it opened. And it's this great little store. Let's see, how would I put the area that it would be in? I I guess it's kind of like... It's like East Hollywood. Yeah, East Hollywood is probably right. Mm -hmm. So actually, if if you're visiting Los Angeles and you're going to some of the Hollywood spots, it's really not that far from the center of that. And if you're in Los Angeles, it's actually a place I admittedly had forgotten about until recently when I wanted to get some of my favorite cookie dough by my friends at Eat Pastry. And I had realized I hadn't been able to find Eat Pastry in many stores in Los Angeles. And then I found out they had full stock at Besties during the quarantine. (laughs) So I ventured out to this bestie store and I've actually been twice in the past week because I was so impressed with what they had in there. And the second time I went in there, I noticed that the woman behind the counter was wearing a face mask as most people were during this time of protection during COVID-19. And on her face mask was for the March of Silence, which Jason and I, our mutual friend, Chef Ito, who is the chef at Olak Restaurant, which is one of the best restaurants I've ever been to and definitely one of the best in Los Angeles. I think he's... Did he start March of Silence or does he just run the a local part of it, Jason? Do you know off the top of your head? There are a few people that are involved. It, it's, it's a nonprofit group. So I don't know that Ito is necessarily the creator of it. He seems to be kind of the progenitor or the person that's most associated with it. But I don't know that he's necessarily the one. Because when I did a panel for World Animal Rights Day, this was also last year, I spoke on a panel with Moby and Koya Webb and a bunch of other vegan activists. There was a larger group working with Ito. So as far as I know, it's a formal nonprofit. Uh, Okay. Well, That point aside, I noticed that her mask was branded for March of Silence, and I recognized the logo and asked her about it, and she said that she had got the mask from one of the marches, and I thought that was so great. (laughs) Here we are in a time of, as of the recording, where 
actually, we're getting to the point where I think we're required to wear masks when we go outside. I think I just read this yesterday. We're recording this on April 8th, 2020. And I'm pretty sure that in the city of Los Angeles, you're required to wear a mask where certain stores are requiring you like one of the local stores I go, grocery stores I go to is requiring that you wear a mask if you're going to go shopping. Anyways, masks are a big deal. And it's kind of funny how it's like the new fashion statement, noticing people's masks. And my point here after that tangent is that once I brought up March of Silence, she looked at me and asked, oh, are you an activist as well? And I found myself kind of fumbling because I don't really consider myself an activist even though I feel like being vegan in itself is a form of activism, I think she was assuming that I was vegan and then just wondering if I would be a vegan activist. And it's been an interesting thing. I want to explore that and then use that as a segue into another specific topic. But it's interesting because there's the dietary side of veganism, so the plant-based diet, where that's a form of activism because you're choosing not to eat certain foods because of what that means for your health, for the environment, and for animals. And I think that that's one of the best choices that you can make. It has a really big ripple effect throughout the world. And then there's also the activist side of people that go to a lot of protests and who get really involved with various forms of animal rights activism. And that's not something that I've done very much of. And I haven't really felt called to it, which is a little hard to admit. It's almost like there's shame or something. I feel like I'm not doing enough or or something like that. And I'm curious, Jason, what your feelings have been. Have you ever considered yourself an activist? I know you have some really big activist friends like Gary Yurofsky, who you've spent a lot of time with. He's like, one of the the most well-known in the vegan movement. And I too have been surrounded by a lot of activists, but yet I'm not somebody that feels a big desire to go and protest. Jason and I have been to the pig vigils in Los Angeles, but I don't even know if I would count as a, pro- that's not really a protest. It's more just holding space for the animals, which again is another form of activism. I just find it interesting for myself to reflect on how I'm an activist and how I'm not an activist. And I'm curious about your thoughts on this, Jason. You just opened up a really, really big question. Boy, I have so many thoughts and feelings on this subject. When I first transitioned from a standard American diet to living a vegan lifestyle back in 1998, one of the things that I was up against was being the only person I knew that ate that way and lived that lifestyle, right? I, I literally didn't know anyone else growing up in in Detroit. And slowly over the course of about, geez, I don't know, maybe the first three to four years, I finally started meeting other people. And you mentioned a really big name in the animal rights activism world, which is Gary Yarovsky. And, and Gary retired a few years ago, but he had a track record of being, you know, an activist for goodness, you know, 20 plus years traveling literally all over the world lecturing and and has had some massively viral YouTube videos. But for me, you know, in the early days, I actually did a lot of protesting. I would go out with signs and I would go out kind of in that angry, angsty, don't you know what you're doing? Don't you know what you're putting in your body? How dare you? Don't you know the fur you're wearing was ripped off someone's back? I mean, it w- it was just, there was an energy around it that if I reflect back on it made sense because in 
my late teens and early 20s, I was really angry. I mean, I still have some anger issues I'm dealing with, but in my early 20s, I mean, I was full of piss and vinegar and fire. And I channeled a lot of that rage and disillusionment into my protesting. And some of it I did with Gary, some of it I did with other um, animal rights organizations that I was involved in. And uh, my cat in the background is saying, yes, dad, you did a great job. <laughs> Julius is like, yeah, fight the power, dad. I, however, started to feel that energetically, and I remember having this thought right around 2004, I remember having this thought of, I'm out there and I'm carrying signs and I'm yelling at people and I'm giving off this energy that is very aggressive and very confrontational. And I remember thinking, does anybody even care? Is this energy and this style of communicating and protesting and letting my feelings be known, is anyone actually receptive to this? That was the word. Is anybody actually receiving this? Or are they just like, who's that angry ass guy with all the tattoos? Like who, why is he so angry? And I remember thinking, as I had learned how to cook more plant-based meals for myself when I was making that transition, I remember having the contrast of sitting down with my family, not just my mom, because my mom went turned vegan three months after I did, but more my extended family, my aunts, my uncles, my cousins. And when I would make food for them or we would have a family dinner, the remarks that they would say of like, wow, this is really delicious. Like, I can't believe this doesn't have meat in it or dairy. And I thought, I wonder if it's more effective as an activist for me to take my love and my skill with making food and use that as my activism. Because it seems to me that people are more receptive and curious when I'm feeding them good food than when I'm in the street corner holding a sign yelling at them. And that was when I made the transition right around 2004, 2005. I went to culinary school. I decided to change my career. But the shift for me was really taking acknowledgement that I didn't feel the standard forms of activism of protest and the anger and the vitriol was working. The inspiration for today's episode came from the fact that this week is Animal Cruelty slash Human Violence Awareness Week. And it's an effort by the Humane Society to raise awareness around animal cruelty and human violence. And I think it's a really important thing to discuss. And, you know, all jokes aside, I feel like if you're not a very compassionate person, you might get triggered by an animal crying in the background, right? And and you may feel an urge or even follow through with being violent to an animal. And I, I think this happens a lot. I think a lot of human beings are struggling with this violent side that maybe a lot of us have <laughs> naturally as human beings. And this idea that animals are ours to control. Animals are there for our pleasure. And if they cause us distress or pain or frustration, then we try to control them by abusing them. And Jason, I know that recently you decided not to watch the Netflix show Tiger King simply because you didn't want to basically contribute or I don't know what word you would use, but see any form of animal abuse on TV and kind of reward a, a television platform like Netflix for putting out that content. You didn't want to partake in it, I think is the word I was looking for. And it's interesting because I did see that show and it was before I had a lot of awareness around what that show meant. You were able to see an article before you started watching it, but I watched it very early on and I wasn't aware that there was human violence before I started. I mean, 
not just human violence, but there is mainly animal violence and abuse in that show. And basically they're using those animals for entertainment purposes and and doing a few things on the show that are pretty shady. And who knows what happened that wasn't even captured on camera. And I, I think that that really highlights some of the drive and motivation that people have and the ways in which some some people may not even be aware that what they're doing to animals is wrong. I like to give most people the benefit of the doubt. And after watching that show, Tiger King, and reflecting on it, I really think that all of that abuse that happened and probably still happens to animals in, in all different parts of the world is out of some form of desperation. Like one of the big themes of Tiger King is the desire for fame, which is something that you and I have talked about, Jason. And it is the desire for money. And, oh, you know, I can use this animal and I can become well-known and I can make money from it. Actually, that's one of the big character arcs, not to give any spoilers to the show. I I won't share any details if the listener chooses to watch this show. One of the big character arcs that you see with multiple characters on the show is going from a place of loving animals and wanting to protect them. A lot of them started with a desire to save endangered species, and that started to evolve into this corruption where suddenly they realized that because they had access to these exotic animals, they could make money from it. They could profit from it. They could get famous from it. They could get love from it. I mean, there was so much that you could see how these people had had changed over the course of their lives. And I guess... That is an example of how I don't think people mean to be cruel to their animals, whether it's as simple as throwing your cat across the room because it's crying and you're so frustrated, you don't know what to do. I mean, people do this to human beings as well. Like there are so many cases of parents doing various forms of abuse to their children just simply because they're frustrated or they're sleep deprived. And it's certainly not okay to do those things. But I think at some level is something that we can relate to. And a lot of us just don't want to admit that we have those dark sides and tendencies. Most of us have it very controlled, but some people don't even know how to control it or they don't have the awareness to realize what they're doing is a form of abuse and violence. I think it runs really deep. It reminds me of some of the books and the seminal works that I remember reading in the early days in the 90s when I was really changing my lifestyle and my relationship to animals and eating and the earth. And the ethical side of it came in for me, the environmental side of it came in, and the human health side of it all came in when I was making that transition and doing all that research. And I remember reading, you know, Diet for a New America. I remember reading lesser known books like Vegan, The New Ethics of Eating by Eric Marcus, which is still a phenomenal book, and Dominion by Matthew Scully who was a former speechwriter for George Bush and you know very much a right-wing uh, staunch republican which you wouldn't necessarily expect quote unquote a person like that to write a book about animal rights and veganism but there were some seminal works back then in the day that I read and I remember there was a correlation that was kind of made between at some point during the agricultural revolution or thereabout there was this mentality that humankind started to move away from the mentality of that we were one with nature as hunter-gatherers or tribal sects of humanity, that we existed in far, far longer than our current construction of society that we've been in, 
in particular capitalism, but more so when the agricultural and certainly the industrial revolution happened, which is closer to us in the timeline, there's been a distancing of us from the natural world from a lot of the indigenous cultures and tribal communities that felt we were one with nature, that there was a communion with nature and the natural resources of the world to looking at it and going, you know what, actually, we're in charge of this. We're not actually one with nature because nature is a scary place and we can be torn limb from limb and there's uncertainty and there's danger around every turn. But what if, what if we could control nature? What if we could take seeds and we could mass produce food? And what if we could take technology and build larger structures and cities and move out of the dangerous, uncertain tribal forestal environment we're in? And to me, that was not only the beginning of, quote, human civilization as we know it, but it was also our distancing from the natural world. And and I think on a soul level, on a deep subconscious level, a lot of the cruelty toward animals, toward each other, toward nature is a result of this deep, deep sentiment that has been going on for millennia that we are in control of nature, that nature is somehow beneath us. It's a resource to be used. It's a resource to be leveraged for profit. And if I may, I think the situation that we've been facing in the world lately, there's been a lot of wake-up calls of like, actually, we're not in control of nature. And this whole idea that we are the arbiters of the natural world and we can use it for our gain and use it for profit, I really hope that mentality is being broken. I really do, because I think we've set ourselves a part of it for so long and almost like a weird godlike sense that we're in control and we can do whatever we want with animals, with nature, with resources, with water, with soil. But I think we're slowly breaking out of this spell, I hope at least. The other thing that this reminds me of is, again, I'm, I'm still reflecting on that show, Tiger King, and there's almost like a rebelliousness. And like you were saying, uh, this desire to control. And I feel like some people think, how dare you tell me what to do? If I own this animal, then I can do whatever I want to it, right? Or if I'm in this marriage or this relationship behind closed doors, I'm allowed to treat that person however I want. If I'm a parent, I can do whatever I want. Don't you tell me what's abuse? Like I'm not being violent. This is just my parenting skill. Like there's this desire to do things our own way and we don't want anyone to tell us what not to do. And I think that's super interesting too. There's also a connection between animal abuse and violence and domestic abuse, all of that. There's been a number of studies, and I'll link to this article on the Humane Society's website that has shown that people have committed acts of animal torture and then gone on to do criminal violence against human beings. And actually, this was highlighted in another Netflix show that I watched, which was much harder to take in than Tiger King was in a lot of ways. The show is called Don't F With Cats. And (laughs) it was very well produced and fascinating, but it was incredibly challenging for me to watch because of the amount of animal torture that went on in it. And the point of the show was how they were working to stop animal torture, but they had to describe it in order to get the message across. And it was agonizing. 
and I had to mute it or skip forward because just just thinking about some of the things that people do. But part of the point of the show is that sometimes torturing animals can lead to bigger forms of violence against human beings. And I think that's part of the reason the Humane Society wanted to raise awareness during this week, which is the third week of April every year, is the connection between the two. And in my opinion, I think a lot of people see domestic abuse, criminal violence against humans as being more important than animal abuse. And the other way around could be true. One point that I've become really passionate about recently is that there are so many forms of violence. It's not always physical violence. It can be emotional abuse, mental abuse. It can be bullying. And it's really interesting how a number of vegans can be so passionate about animal abuse, but yet they're really cruel to one another. There's almost like a lack of compassion with human beings. And I I think this also goes back to your point, Jason, where you found that you could be more of an activist through food. And uh, that was a way of reaching people. And I think that was a form of compassion because you you were noticing that people weren't enjoying your rants as an activist. They didn't want to be forced. They didn't want you to try to convince them of something. But if you could show them that food could taste really well, that was a kind way and a very subtle way to reach people. And I I do feel like there has been a number of times where vegans think like, I don't care if I'm offending somebody, I'm going to say this anyways or do this anyways. And I personally feel like that's not a very compassionate mentality and it can be harmful. Yeah, I ultimately have kind of rested in this space of if my intention is to spark curiosity and openness in someone, I've found that gentleness is a way to approach people. I found that effective. Obviously, understanding the points and the research that I want to communicate, if that comes into conversation, is also important. And more so, though, when you have someone who's breaking bread with you literally and enjoying a meal or in terms of the stand-up comedy I've done, you know, you get someone laughing on stage or even some of the health presentations I've done over the years, someone in a state of laughter, their defenses are down, their guards are down and they're open to receiving information. So for me, joyfulness, nourishment and laughter, I have found personally to be much more effective forms of activism and sparking a new conversation than telling someone what they ought to do, what they should do, and what they're doing wrong. And so I often find when activists say, well, I don't care if I offend someone, I need to get my point across. To me, that feels like a very egoic perspective where it's like, I'm the arbiter of truth, I'm the holder of knowledge, and I'm going to impose it on you whether you like it or not. And then I have to ask the question, what is the intention? Is the intention to get someone to see your point of view? Or is it to violently hammer your point across no matter what the reception is. I often ask those people, like, what is your actual intent here? Is it that you feel powerless and you feel trampled on in a certain way? You feel like you're not heard. You feel unimportant. And by sharing your viewpoint violently or forcefully, then you'll feel like a level of importance. Or is it to actually open a conversation? Because I just feel there are more effective ways of doing it. Well, I think a lot of this comes down to ego. And it's, I think, the thread through with a lot of violence and abuse is that there is this thought that you, meaning like 
whoever we're talking about in this case as the abuser, you are more important. You are the one that's in control. You are the one that's right. It's like the world is centering around this person and it's a level of narcissism, right? To think that it's kind of like a godlike thing. Like you're determining whether or not you're kind to somebody. You're determining how you treat somebody and whether or not they deserve to be treated well or not. You're the one that has the right information and this person is wrong and it's your job to convince them. And I I think that it is a psychological issue here and a very serious problem. In fact, on the Humane Society's website, one of the things that they recommend is psychological intervention. And I think that this is one of the reasons that therapy is so important is, is people are looking for an outlet too and support with their pain. And unfortunately, sometimes people use violence as an outlet. Sometimes people don't know how to deal with their pain, so they want to inflict pain on on another being. And it's a really sad and important issue to discuss. That's why I wanted to bring this up, even though it's tough to discuss this. I think one of the things that makes people uncomfortable is talking about these things. But if we don't pay attention to it, if we just think, oh, well, I'm not abusive and I'm not violent, then I don't need to pay attention to this. But maybe somebody else in your life has violent tendencies. Maybe somebody else in your life is being abused and you don't even realize it. This is why these things are important to discuss and not shame people. We don't want to make these the things that you should never talk about, right? It also reminds me of something that made a big impact on me many years ago with Sean Monson, who directed movies like Earthlings and Unity. And I think it was in an interview that I did with him <laughs> way back at uh, my early days with Eco Vegan Gal. And I asked him if it was hard for him to watch footage of animals being abused. And in essence, his answer was that he felt it was important to bear witness. And that's part of the reason Jason and I have been to the pig vigils in Los Angeles. It's incredibly painful to bear witness for animals that you know are going to be killed and you you have no control over it. But those animals don't have control either. So at the very least, you can bear witness to what's happening and send love to them and also use it as an opportunity to stay motivated. And I think that that's why conversations are important is we need to hold safe places. We need to be make it okay to talk about these things because when people feel shame, embarrassment, when they try to hide their true feelings or their situation, they may not seek the help that they need. And that continues the cycle of abuse and violence. And it's a dark side that needs to be examined. I, I want to comment on two things that you brought up with. One was exposing ourselves willfully to the suffering that exists in this world and the pain that exists in this world. And I, I do feel that there is a, a, a deeply important element to a degree. I want, I want to share this. It reminds me of the story of the Buddha, the Gautama Buddha, and that really briefly, because I don't want to make this about the Buddha, but that he was raised in a very sheltered royal family that protected him from what was happening in the outside world. And when he left the palace grounds and went out into the world, he discovered beggars and lepers and disease and people suffering in poverty. And that was one of the seminal things that put the Buddha uh, purportedly, you know, the story goes on his path of enlightenment. And that 
being aware of the suffering and the pain of the world, the totality of the human experience and the animal experience, the experience of the world was part of his awakening. So I, I think that if we're talking about any of the documentaries, the great documentaries you mentioned, Unity, Earthlings, Cowspiracy, Forks Over Knives, I mean, there's a lot of environmental documentaries out there too, that exposing ourselves to the reality of the situation that we are in or potentially heading toward has value. But for me, I, I also know that I have, I don't know if it's a tipping point or if it's a threshold is a better word. I have a threshold where in the early days, I watched a lot of animal abuse videos through Gary Orofsky, through other activists. I was working with Bruce Friedrichs and people at PETA back in the day. And I bombarded myself with so much of it that now when I see an animal abuse video coming through, I'm like, I don't need to see it because I'm so deeply and keenly aware of I mean, I, I still have memories of being haunted by some of the things that I've seen, you know, stuff that wasn't even made public, stuff that Gary's like, you have to see this, it's never going to go public. But I just think that there's an awareness that we do need and that is useful of the totality of suffering and pain on this planet, but not so much that we destroy our state of being by feeling so depressed and so powerless. I think for me, at least, there's a threshold where I'm like, I don't need to watch more of this because I'm going to make myself so depressed and feel powerless that I'm not going to take action. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. And I think each of us has to really become attuned to what we need in that time because I've gone through stages where I felt like it was important for me to bear witness more than it was to take care of my emotional self. I, I guess in a way I felt like it might be selfish if I said, well, I can't handle watching this. And then I would think back to what Sean said and think, well, that animal didn't have a choice about what was happening to it. And the very least I can bear witness to the pain that they went through or they're about to go through because perhaps that changes some sort of karma. Like a, it puts a different energy into the world. It puts an energy of love. And I know when I went to the pig vigil, as painful as it was, I mean, we didn't actually see them being abused or killed. We saw them right before that happened. It was their last moment. So it's a little bit of a different situation because the aim of a pig vigil is to give love to these animals. It's the last time and maybe the only time that they've ever received it. So that's a bit different. Watching violence happen is really challenging. One of the pivotal moments for me was when I saw this documentary years ago called Fur Trade. And it was about the fur industry and, and very graphic. And I forced myself to watch it all the way through without closing my eyes or turning away. And it was because of what Sean had said to me, I think probably within a year or so before I saw that movie. And I just thought, I want to watch this for the animals. I want to make sure that I know what's going on because sometimes we can make an assumption. Oh, I know what's going on. But sometimes we don't actually know until we see it with our own eyes. And I will never forget the imagery from that movie. And that made me a stronger activist in a way. You know, That made me clearer about why fur is so bad. I don't think I was fully aware. And so I think it's, it's a balance. I would encourage anyone listening to really take it experience by experience. Check in with yourself about your reasons for watching something versus not watching something. And and really weigh out the pros and cons. Sometimes it helps to actually write these things down. Like, why am I choosing to watch this? Why am I choosing not to watch this? 
what is the ripple effect of me making those decisions? And we might need to kind of dig deeper to see what our our motivations are and what's truly a priority for us. And I think part of raising awareness is just being knowledgeable and knowing what the signs are, right? I mean, that's part of what is also recommended during Animal Cruelty Awareness Week is just to be keen and notice what is a form of mistreatment. It can be all sorts of different extremes when it comes to animals. It can be that they don't have adequate shelter, that they're being left out all day in the hot sun. I've seen these videos on platforms like TikTok where people have noticed that their neighbor's dog was out in the yard constantly. And some of us might not think much of it, right? Oh, it's just outside. That's what they do. But if that dog doesn't have access to water or it's too hot out and they need to go inside for shelter, that could be a form of mistreatment, right? And so it's really about education. That's part of my point here is that sometimes we just want to protect ourselves from the painful things. But that could be perceived as selfish because if we're trying to protect ourselves so much, we actually can't protect other animals or human beings. Yeah, I think that's a wonderful perspective, Whitney, and and also sparked something. (laughs) I haven't talked to anyone about this. And you sparked something in me that has been a real conflict for me. And I want to hash it out in real time real quick because it's come up and it's important to me. And you hit right on the head with the TikTok videos and some of the things you've seen on social media about people taking video footage of their neighbors and perhaps a dog that's left out in the hot sun without water or on a chain or whatever it is. And we have some friends, dear friends that run animal rescue organizations, one of which I'll give a little backstory. And then I want to talk about a current situation that's a conflict for me that my dog, Bella, who some of the listeners may follow me on social media and see pictures of my Frenchie Bella, that Whitney actually was the person who turned me on. I adopted her from our friend Brittany, who runs a wonderful animal rescue organization called Little Love Rescue in Los Angeles. And as a sidebar, if anyone is looking to adopt, Brittany and her organization are absolutely wonderful. They're always looking for fosters and adopting families. So if you're looking for a companion animal, we will uh, put the link to Little Love Rescue and all of the resources from this episode in the show notes at wellevator.com. To go back to it, Bella was taken, okay, from an abusive breeder situation. So as far as I know, the information we know about Bella's history is she was used as a breeder dog and was taken by a dog sitter and literally taken slash rescued from an abusive, physically abusive situation. We don't know the extent of it, but she ended up with the rescue organization and then ended up being my dog now. So down the street in the neighborhood I live in LA, there's a rabbit that from what I can tell is being kept outdoors constantly in a very, very small enclosure, like an enclosure where I'm like, that is too small for this large rabbit. And there have been so many times that I've walked by on my street down the block and have been tempted to just take that rabbit. Because in my opinion, and this is very tricky, right? We go back to the one of the original points you made, Whitney, of this idea of ownership or owning our children or owning our animals or owning the earth. It's like, it's mine. I can do what I want with it. It's been a tricky thing for me ethically because a part of me wants to take this rabbit because it is in an enclosure where it's exposed to the sun. As far as I can tell all day long, it was raining like hell last night. And I'm like, I'm going to take this fucking rabbit. 
But there's a part of me that stopped, which like, what if you don't know the whole story? What if the kids that live there love this rabbit? I'm like, well, if they love this rabbit, why is it out next to this broken down ass old car in their front yard in a tiny enclosure? I've seen carrots. I've seen food in there. But there's just a part of me that's like, I want to take this rabbit. And I'm conflicted about what to do. That's tough. And you also live in a neighborhood that is culturally very different from how you live and how you were raised. And and so there also might be cultural barriers or even language barriers. I don't, I don't know exactly which these neighbors it is. And, and that adds another problem. It reminds me a lot of a rabbit that I temporarily rescued years ago when I was visiting my family. My mother and I were driving down the street at night and we saw this huge white rabbit just running free in a yard. And we pulled over because this rabbit could have easily been hit by a car or attacked by an animal such as a coyote. And we got the rabbit. We didn't see any sign that there was anybody around. We, we looked around to see and this rabbit maybe have just escaped. It was in front of a house nearby Then the lights were out. And it wasn't that late at night. So my mother and I took the rabbit and then immediately posted online and we're looking for who the rabbit belonged to. And it took days. Finally, we went back to where we got the rabbit from and knocked on the door of the house. And it was like this strange, in my opinion, I guess strange is always relative, but it was like some animal therapy, I don't know, clinic. I don't know what it was, but it it was very, very liberal. (laughs) And their response was, oh yeah, that's our rabbit. And yeah, we just let him outside sometime. They were so nonchalant about it. And they said to my mother and I, like, you can keep the rabbit if you want. And I wasn't living there and my mother was not prepared to have a rabbit. But we decided just to take care of the rabbit for a little longer. And like a week or so went by and then they called us up, a different person than we had talked to. And they were like, we want our rabbit back. You took the rabbit from us. And they demanded that they take the rabbit back. So my mother didn't want to cause any issues. She gave the rabbit back to them. But the whole family felt really weird about it because, you know, it was a similar situation, Jason, where why did this rabbit deserve a family or a, or a living situation where people just like let it out without watching it, let it just like roam around a busy street and outside. I mean, to me, that's mistreatment. And then we found out online through that website nextdoor.com, there were other people in the area that continued to see the rabbit being let out in that same circumstance. And to this day, I've really regretted not fighting more for that rabbit because who knows if he's even still alive. I think that their clinic or whatever it was eventually shut down. And there's like a level of of guilt that I felt over the years because this was an incredible creature that my family probably would have ended up making a, ho- a nice home for on the property and just showering with love. And we kind of reluctantly let it go back to this place that wasn't treating it well. So you know, I don't know if that helps your specific situation or anyone else listening to, to you, Jason, but it is tricky because we could have tried to fight for this animal and it could have caused this huge uproar. Or, you know, at the time we kind of figured maybe they were going to take better care of the rabbit. You know, like we had the best of intentions in giving it back to the original owners, but you just kind of never know. People can say, that they're going to take good care of an animal, but their version of, of good care could be very different from yours. And 
I guess when you were telling the story, Jason, I was really rooting for the, for you taking this animal <laughs> because <laughs> rabbits are actually can be incredible companion animals. And I would be really excited on a selfish level, but I think it would require some more investigation because to your point, you know, even with your dog, Bella, we don't even have the whole story on what happened. And I think a lot of assumptions can be made. And, and sometimes people go to extreme. It's like, when you break into somebody's car because the dog's sitting in there and you think it's going to die of, of heat, well, absolutely could, but maybe the air conditioning was on and you didn't realize it. Or, you know, like you, sometimes we just have all this information and people will just go to these extremes before they collect all the information or because their definition of mistreatment is more extreme than yours and it's tricky. And the same thing can be said about human beings. Like some people are in emotionally abusive relationships, but they don't even realize it. And maybe their friends think that they're being abused, but really they just don't like the person that they're partnered with. I guess it's that's the fine line of of what does it mean to actually be mistreated? Yeah, there, there's a lot of nuance in this conversation. I think that's that's the word. And can we ever get the full scope of what is actually happening in any situation? I mean, certainly there's the desire to garner as much information about what is happening as possible, but can we ever get the full picture? And, you know, just on your point, you brought up the differences between culture and how we're raised and perhaps certain patternings that we observe from our parents or the generations that we're, we've been raised by. When I've gone to places like Nicaragua or Costa Rica, Mexico, Ecuador, some places in Europe, in fact, you had a really interesting experience in Greece. You know, that, that the relationship that I've observed in a lot of different countries I've traveled to, many of them, in fact, is that companion animals, we're not even talking about feral creatures, but even companion animals roam the streets. They go where they want. They come back for food. They go where they want. And even small children, like really small kids in certain countries, I'm like, wow, like how old? Like, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm five. And I'm like, where are your parents? They're like, oh, they're back home. And the kids are just chilling like miles from home. And so it is this battle of the way I was raised or the way I was raised to regard animals or their care or what is loving care or the way perhaps that my mom or my dad raised me of how far they would let me go away from the house or at what age they would let me roam. It's very, very, very different depending on the country and the culture we're in. And I think that goes back to the challenge I'm having right now is my perception of mistreatment, as you said, or my perception of this animal or this child isn't being cared for. It's a hard judgment to make sometimes. And I am, I am struggling with it because there's this thing of like, what if I take the rabbit and then these kids are devastated, but I'm perceiving that, hey, you should have like a much bigger space for this rabbit because it's pacing back and forth. I don't know. I'm still struggling with it. I still haven't made a final decision. Well, on one of the websites, which we'll link to in the show notes at wellevator.com, that's W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com. In the podcast section of our website, we have extensive notes on every single episode. So if you're looking for more resources or anything that we're referencing, you can find it there. And one link that I'll put there is to a website that helps you recognize animal cruelty and how to report it. And so some of the common signs of animal abuse are open wounds, signs of multiple healed wounds, physical ailments not being treated, poor skin conditions, emaciation, limping, difficulty standing, difficulty walking, flea or tick infestations left untreated, chained outdoors for long periods of time, 
kept outside in extreme weather conditions, multiple animals living together in cramped or overcrowded conditions, animals housed in animals with large amounts of feces or garbage, or foul odors coming from a home where many animals are known to be living. And then they tell you to consider reporting to an organization. So maybe that actually is the best option for you. They recommend not confronting a suspected animal abuser, instead contacting a local animal control officer or humane society. And I know the trick with that is this fear that they'll be taken into a shelter and maybe euthanized or something. So I would recommend to you, Jason, or anyone else who's listening and and in a similar situation to see if you can partner up with somebody. So for you, you might want to partner up with one of your friends that's really knowledgeable about these type of situations and talk to them. I think speaking to Brittany at Little Love Rescue would be really wise. And maybe just giving a few different opinions because you certainly don't want to take any drastic measures at first, at least. Yeah. Something that I just monitor, you know, every time I walk Bella down the street, I kind of check in like, how's the rabbit doing? Is it eating? Does it look healthy? Is it okay? I don't know. I just feel like it's one of those things where I'm just being mindful and observant without taking any drastic action. But I'm, again, it goes back to like, in my opinion, I feel that the enclosure it's in is far too small for that size of an animal. And that's the thing that bothers me. It doesn't look wounded. It doesn't look like it has open wounds. It doesn't look like it's being physically abused. It's just one of those things where it's like, I feel like this creature needs more room. I wonder if it would make any sense for you to like offer to build or bring over another enclosure so they could have it because it could either be a case of ignorance or maybe they feel like they can't afford a better situation and that what they have is good enough. Mm, You know, I thought about that of just like delivering like a larger rabbit enclosure in their driveway with a note on it and saying like, I got you guys a gift for your rabbit, like with no explanation. Yes, exactly. Something really kind. And, you know, I really admire your rabbit and you could even say like, I was gifted this, but my rabbit, you know, like you can make up some sort of fake story to kind of make it seem like, hey, I had an extra one of these lying around (laughs) 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 or uh, something like that and just see what happens. Because I guess there's always a chance that you offend them or they're not comfortable receiving a gift, but it might be worth the risk just just simply for the animal's sake. And I think that would be a really sweet gesture because then if they do love this rabbit and they're doing the best that they can or know how, then you're helping them out. Yeah, no, that's a good point. I've thought about that and maybe it's a time for me to get handy. I have all this time on my hands right now. Yeah, you could create. And anyways, <laughs> it might it might help you feel inspired to make the outdoor space for your cats that I've been encouraging you to make. I knew that was coming. (laughs) I knew that was coming. I mean, honestly, just a trip to Home Depot to get some wood and some fencing. You could make like a really cool outdoor enclosure for your animals and make one for the rabbit. Then you would have a real legitimate excuse if you left it like, hey, you know, during quarantine, I built this and, you know, I thought you might want to use it for your rabbit or something like that. But uh, also, when I went to find the link for Little Love Rescue, I stumbled upon the Little Love Rescue Instagram account, Jason, and there's a cat on there that looks almost identical to Julius as a kitten. And I think it's really interesting, this coming full circle with Julius crying in the background earlier, and he came from Little Love Rescue. There's another little baby, Julie. 
up for adoption as we speak. Yeah, the thing I've had to do is limit my urges to adopt animals because I am currently at five and five is a it's a it's a good number. And I also acknowledge that if I were to have more room, more physical space, perhaps live on a farm or have just more square footage. And I do anticipate eventually I'll adopt more because the urge is there. But there's also the mm, for the square footage I have, this is a good number. We're gonna we're gonna stand pat for now. Well, that's important to consider too, is is that we have to remember when we adopt animals that we're taking on the role of care and we need to consider the length of their lives. There's so many cases of people that get animals and then realize that there's more than they bargained for, right? Like when they buy a bunny rabbit for Easter and then realize they don't want the bunny rabbit after Easter and so they just abandon it or... God forbid, do something worse to it. There are people that get mini pigs as pets and then they grow up to be large pigs and they think, oh, I didn't intend on having a large pig. (laughs) Or there are people that have more animals than they can pay for. I mean, animals can be very expensive. We have to consider the costs of them. And I mean, the same thing goes with human beings. It's like children. It sounds so wonderful to have a kid and everybody's having children, but we have to think about the long-term time investment and costs involved in the shelter. I mean, there's so many factors when we're taking care of any being, even a plant. (laughs) Even plants, you know, require a lot of care and attention. And, you know, it's a big responsibility to have a relationship with an animal, with a plant, with a human being. And I think it's a great opportunity to grow as a person, to have these dynamics but it's also a really big responsibility that we have to take seriously and know that every living being has feelings. Every living being is deserving of respect and care. And if we're taking on any role of responsibility, we have to take it incredibly seriously. Yeah, well said, Wit. It's an honor, though, you know, I think in a way to care for a being. And to me, there's this thing of we talked about the narcissism and the ego, like genuine care. I think is not necessarily about like, you depend on me. I am your God. You depend on me. I give you food and shelter and water. It's not this narcissistic ego thing of someone dependent on you, but I think real care and real nurturing is coming from a genuine, deep, unconditional love and a desire to be of service to another person without expecting anything in return. And animals, especially cats, can definitely teach you that. Because like, come here, I want to love you. Give me love. Give me love. They're like, I don't feel like giving you love right now. Well, I'm glad that we found a way to balance out the serious talk with uh, a little bit of laughter and joy. And ultimately, animals are a huge source of joy in our lives, as are human beings. And and like I said, even plants, they count as well, too. (laughs) You know, we bring these things into our lives very intentionally most of the time. And we do that because we think that they're going to enhance our lives. And we just have to remember that it can't always be joyful. There's going to be times that are serious. There are going to be times that are painful. There are going to be times that are, are really frustrating. And we just have to continue to be aware and conscious of the way that we interact with anything outside of ourselves and also pay attention to how other people are treating other beings, right? If, if you see something that seems like mistreatment, really evaluate it. And I think it's probably better to err on the side of caution 
in terms of if you think that animal abuse or human violence is happening, do something about it. Don't just be silent. Don't pretend that it's not happening. I think in your case, Jason, with the rabbit, something needs to be done, if not just said. At least it would make you feel better to know that you were trying and that you put some effort in it because who knows what that rabbit's going through. And I hope that it's being well cared for and loved, but we just can't make that assumption. Just like we can't make the assumption that somebody is in a good relationship if they're showing signs of mistreatment. If if we feel like we're suspecting something, a lot of the times our intuitions are right. And I think that's a huge reason that this week exists and was created by the Humane Society is that we need to just pay attention to the signs. We need to be aware of it. We need to take our own personal responsibility and play our role in protecting other people if we see any signs of mistreatment. Yeah, that's really, really well said, Wit. And I think the the point about intuition is spot on. There's there's something that gets activated in me when I see this rabbit, and I'm not sure what that is. But I know I, I do want to take some form of action, and I'm just trying to figure out what the best course is. Well, to be continued, I suppose. We'll probably have some people asking about this rabbit. So we will keep you posted. Maybe we'll update it. As I said earlier, we have show notes for every episode of the podcast at wellevator.com. That's W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com. There's a podcast section in every single episode of this show has the show notes. And not only can you read the transcript, get all the resources, but there's a comment section there. So if you have follow-up questions, observations, things to contribute, such as resources, we'd love to hear from you there. And hopefully we will update this episode with some positive news about that rabbit when that gets resolved. You can also get in touch with us on social media. We are at Wellevator, W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R, We have our separate accounts as Jason and Whitney, Jason Robel, and my accounts are Eco Vegan Gal or at Wit Lauritsen. But if you wanted to talk about anything podcast related, the best way to do that is through Wellevator. You can direct message us if you'd like it to be private. You can email us at hello at wellevator.com and you can join our community on Patreon. We have a wonderful community of amazing, like minded people that are passionate about their well being, and we have lots of different perks. And we're always working on adding more value through Patreon. We'd love to have you part of that. So if you want to check that out, it's patreon.com slash Wellevator. And there are links on our website to that as well. Anything else you'd like to add, Jason? Or is it time to go back to caring for your cats? Well, I think everyone's just really kind of riled up with a lot of pent up energy because of the quarantine. I mean, I kind of sense that they're like, oh, he's sticking around all day but we have all this energy. So I think I need to probably play a little and give them a little extra attention right now and also feed myself. But, you know, it's all good. But, you know, we're figuring it out. And and if there's one thing I'm deeply, deeply grateful for, especially having this extra time at home during the quarantine period, is their presence. Because I think that mentally I would feel a little bit crazy if I didn't have these beautiful, beautiful companions with me. So feeling extra gratitude for them right now. Yep. I'm going to go take a walk myself with my dog, which brings joy to both of us and is a wonderful way to care for them. I sometimes feel like I'm neglecting my dog a little by not taking her for enough walks. So (laughs) that's definitely a plus sign to give us both some exercise. And I'm grateful for that too. Well, to the dear listener, we have some amazing resources on our website, wellevator.com, all about mental and emotional wellness. We have our great new PDF called From Chaos to Calm, all about taming anxiety and fear and overwhelm. 
And uh, we also have some awesome courses like wellness warrior training. And when this quarantine is lifted, Whitney and I will be doing some live events. It's been a minute and we have some great stuff in the pipeline. So you can sign up for our newsletter at wellevator.com and stay up with all of the latest and greatest that we are creating for you. Thanks for listening and getting out of your comfort zone with us today. For show notes and more high-performance resources to help you thrive, go to wellevator.com. That's W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com.